This week on Writers, Inc. Doctors or people in general, we love to create these buckets and, and boxes that we can tick off to categorize things. And you know, it's a necessary evil. Um, but at the same time, I don't think anything in life is black and white. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, how's it going, man? Hey, Jay. How you been? Good. Good, man. We're, uh, I don't know what's changed in the past 60 seconds or so since last time we talked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's been been hours. I'm, I'm, I'm watching people move furniture in outside on our, our driveway, which is, is very sloped um, and very icy right now. Um, it, you're in Ohio, right? So you, yeah. I don't know if you guys have a lot of snow, but yeah, we, we've we gotten do. a lot of snow recently. And, and yesterday was actually raining, which is a lovely combination when you've got a, a you know, driveway that, that's slanted. But nobody <laughs> seems to be dropping anything. Um, well, that's good. So, that's so good. Far. Yeah, so the, we'll, the joke we'll... is if you, if you don't know how podcasting works behind the scenes, uh, sometimes podcasters will, will batch record episodes uh, that are weeks apart. So this this is going to be a few weeks after we record it, but it's only a few minutes after we recorded the last one. Exactly. <laughs> it's confusing even for me. Yeah I, I, yeah. I think I'm actually retired now. I think we're like 20 years in the future. <laughs> looking back on it. Yeah, you so never know. Things that I can now. <laughs> well, we, we decided to do kind of a, um, it's not a solo episode because it's the two of us, but we don't have an interview on, on this episode because we had a few things that we wanted to talk about and we thought if we put these together, it would make a really interesting episode. So the, uh, the two topics today, we're going to talk about um, Asperger's because um, you brought that up before and I think that's, uh, that's something that um, not many people know too much about or might have some misconceptions about what that is. Uh, so we're going to talk about that and, uh, and then we're gonna, um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about my manuscript because I'm to the, pl I'm to the point now where I, I'm kind of ready for the next step. So uh, that's going to be the, the episode today and, uh, and hopefully everyone will uh, you know, get a lot of useful information out of that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wanted to bring up the Asperger's thing because um, it, first of all, I didn't even know that I had this as a, I don't want to call it a condition. I'm not really sure what the right term is, but I, I hate labels on stuff like this. Yeah. But I, I didn't know that I had this until I was, I think around 22 is when I was actually diagnosed. Oh. Um, but, but it had been a problem, you know, like I was born in 1971. So, Same. you know, yeah, they, you know, they treat these types of things very differently. Like I think educators at this point can spot it a lot earlier. Um, and you know, they, they, they watch for it, but, it, but in my day, they, they just really didn't. Um, they just kind of, they shoved you in the classroom and you were either, you know, you were slow or you were unsocial or whatever. You were a case, problem student. You were a prob yeah, yeah. You were a problem child. And I, I was kind of all those things. Um, you know, like I, I, when I entered kindergarten, I already knew how to read. Like I was reading by the time I was three. Um, you know, so the teacher is up there and trying to teach the kids the alphabet. And like, I already know the alphabet forwards and backwards. And, um, you know, it, it causes you to become the problem child because yeah. you don't want to pay attention. So you start goofing off. And, you know, I quickly realized that if I made people laugh, um, you know, then 
it was that sort of made me feel like I was socially accepted. So I became the class clown like very early on and, and kind of ran with that. Um, and I never really had to study a whole lot. Um, my IQ has been measured a bunch of different times and I'm typically like in the 150 to 160 range. Um, I, I, I probably dropped about 10 points after college with all the drinking. Um, <laughs> But, you know, like it allows one of the things that it allows me to do is just I learn stuff really fast. Um, and I always have. So, like, I, you know, I really never did homework. Like I would do homework, like, you know, right before the class and the, the current class. So if I was in English class and I had a math assignment due, I would do my math in English um, and just knock it out. I never took my books home. I never had to study. And I, I still did really well in school. Um, but, you know, and I, and I would goof off all the time. So like that, that was always a problem, but that was the thing. I was, I was the problem child. Like they never really realized what, what the issue was. Um, I do remember in, in third grade, they tested me to figure out how I learned best. And, you know, some people learn best by hearing something. Other people have to, uh, have to verbalize it. Other people have to write it down. Um, I learned very early on that if I wrote something down that I would remember it. Um, so if I take pretty much anything and, and write it down, I, I, I'll remember it like years later. Like I, I could tell you my locker combination from high school. Wow. And, you know, stupid little things. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, like I, it, it, it's always, it's like hit or miss, you know, like if, if there's certain things that I'd like to remember that I just can't, like, I couldn't tell you what I ate for dinner, you know, like a week ago, you know, like silly, silly little stuff. Um, but you know, as an Aspie, my brain works very differently than, than other people. Um, I, I love the fact that people, students can be homeschooled now because I speak to a lot of uh, groups with just kids in general that are on the um, on the spectrum. That's what they call it nowadays, um, the autism spectrum. Um, and through homeschooling, particularly with an ASPE, uh, you know, we're not bound by you know the classroom study you know period anymore. Like you know, they, they've got a very structured. You know, we're going to learn this, and then we're going to learn this, and they're going to teach you this in this grade and this in that grade. Um, when you're homeschooled, you can learn at your own pace. Um, which I love. And I wish that was something that had been available to me when I was younger, because um, I've learned a lot of things, you know, j just since like the internet came around, you know, because I can jump online and I can learn a foreign language or I can learn about this or I can learn about that at, at my own pace. Um, it's just not something that existed back then. Um, so I think that that's helped quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I was, I, I graduated high school two years early, um, through it. And then I ended up going into college. Um, but you know, this whole period, I didn't realize that, you know, like this was an actual form of autism. I just knew something was different. Something was, was off, but, um, it, it, one of the, the biggest problems for me was, was always just the social settings. And, it, and it's still an issue. Like people that have Asperger's or myself, like, you know, it's very difficult for us to make eye contact. Um, it's very difficult for us to have just a regular conversation because, you know, like if I'm talking to somebody, I, I know what I'm going to say next. My brain automatically figures out or thinks it figures out what they're going to say next. And then my brain continues that conversation, figures out how I'm going to reply and it will go back and forth. It's almost like playing chess and being like five or 10 moves ahead of where you really are. Mm. Um, so you basically become bored with a conversation because you've already had it up here in your head. Huh. Um, but it's, you know, it's playing out in real time. So when now, I'm what, at a park, what if it doesn't match up to what's going on in your head? Does that cause you some problems? Well, the funny thing is it usually does. Um, pe people are very predictable. Um, <laughs> it's, it seems crazy, but it, it kind of is, especially in, in social situations. You just kind of know where people are going with a lot of different things. Um, it doesn't always, um, but, but, you know, for the most part it does. Um, but it, it causes, you know, people with Asperger's to become very bored um, when they're in a social setting and, and feel very self-conscious. Um, and there's, but at the same time, you know, there, there are a lot of benefits to it. Like I learned how to play piano when I was very young. Um, anything that's structured my brain for whatever reason seems to be able to wrap around very easily. Um, like computer, writing. 
Yeah, like writing. Um, <laughs> computer computer coding was another one. I, I learned how to write in um, BASIC, which the, the actual first computer language was, was BASIC on an Apple IIe, um, then went to Visual BASIC, went to this language, went to that language. Um, for me, writing a novel is very similar to writing a computer program because when you write that first line of code, you kind of need to know how it's going to impact the last line of code. Um, you have to have all that planned out in your head. Um, so I tell people from a writing standpoint that I'm a pantser. Um, and that's mainly because I don't write anything down. I mean, I, I joke around about it. Like if you read the, the end of um, Six Wicked Child, I said that we had post-it notes all over the house um, for me to keep the storyline straight. That's honestly not true. I, I, didn't, have, <laughs> I, I didn't have any post-it notes. It was, it's basically all up in my head. Um, I, I, just, I, I, I create an outline, but in, I, I keep it all in, in, in internal. I don't actually write it down. Yeah, I get that. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, I think the fact that I am an ASPE, it allows me to create some fairly complex structures and, and keep all the, the moving parts straight. Um, I also absorb, you know, material pretty easily. So I, like, I've, I've never been taught how to write. Uh, I learned how to write by reading. Um, I, I personally don't think you can teach people what, what I call the, the, the story gene. Mm. Um, I think you can teach people how to put their commas in the right place, how to use a semicolon properly, you know, how to write a, a solid paragraph. You can teach all the, the grammatical parts of it. Um, but teaching somebody to be able to sit down like at a campfire and tell a story that's captivating is something that you either have or you don't have. Um, as an Aspie, I, you know, I, I study the structure of books, whether I want to or not, from a psych, psych, uh, subconscious level. You know, I'll read a book and my brain will process, okay, it was written like this because of this and like this is going to trigger that. Um, and I, per I purposely read a lot of bestsellers and, and tear them apart just to you know, try and figure out the structure and figure out why they work and why they don't work. Um, and I, and I also tend to, um, trust my subconscious quite a bit when it comes to the writing process. Um, you know, when it comes to speeding up pacing and things like that, or, you know, if I write a scene and I don't know where it's going to go, I know my subconscious will eventually figure it out. Um, and, and I don't know if that's an Aspie thing or if it's just me being you know, seasoned as a writer or a combination of both. It's, yeah. it's really hard to say. Um, but I, I do speak to, a, you know, the reason why I'm rambling off about all this stuff is I, I do speak to a lot of groups, a lot of parents um, of children that have autism of, of any level, um, just to let them know that, you know, even though your kid may have some issues now, because a lot of times parents first find out that their, their kid is autistic at a very young age and it's scary. Yeah. You know, like what, what's going to happen with my child when they're 18, when they're 20, when they have to go off on their own. Um, and, and I'm doing pretty well. And I always have, I'm, I'm, I'm a millionaire right now for the third time in my life, a third different career. I did it in the music industry. I did it in the financial industry. And now I'm doing it as a writer. I'm pretty sure if this dried up and you told me tomorrow I had to sell screwdrivers, I would find some way to, to turn that into a, a profitable career. Um, and that, again, I think that's an Aspie thing. Like I'm, I'm very project oriented, very driven, um, to a fault. Um, you know, I get my, my wife is, is criticizes me quite a bit because I don't really celebrate a whole lot. You know, like uh, I'll hit, I'll hit a bestseller list somewhere and I'm like, well, but I didn't hit number one. I hit number three. Um, you know, like next time I got to hit number one, like I, I, I don't take those wins and, and celebrate them at all. I just kind of try to figure out how to improve on it. Um, and I'm rambling here. So that, which is another Aspie thing. My brain's going a million miles an hour. Um, do you have any questions for me on it? Yeah, I would, I'm curious as to, I, I don't want to phrase, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but like 22, um, seems like pretty late in life to get this diagnosis. So was there something that triggered you or your family to say you need to get like some medical opinion on this? Like what, what, how did that come about? 
it actually happened while I was working in the financial industry. Um, one of the, the biggest problems uh, as an ASPE, we, I have something that's very similar to OCD. If I start a project, I can't get interrupted until that project is done. Or if somebody puts a problem in front of me, like I have to solve that problem. Um, and and it, it's almost like if somebody were making a noise and like it starts to get louder and louder and louder and becomes like this, this screaming noise in my head until that problem is solved. And once the problem is solved, everything's okay. Everything's calm and everything's good. Um, when I was working in the corporate world, uh, I accomplished a lot of things, but at the same time, I couldn't get interrupted in whatever task I was working on. You know, I might be able to do something much faster than other people, but if somebody were to just poke their head in my office and just say, hey, you want to go grab lunch, it would completely derail mm. everything that I was working on. And, and you know, the, the, the flip side of that is a temper. You know, I, I would get angry. Um, so I, I was actually going to therapy because of that. And, you know, most ter therapists, you know, weren't seasoned to, to be able to recognize that as a form of autism. They thought that it was, you know, an anger issue or it was this or it was that. Um, and one of the therapists that I actually went to her, she was sharing an office with another therapist that actually specialized in autistic kids. Um, and she compared some of the notes um, from one of our sessions with her. She told her about um, some one of our sessions and she said, hey, he might be. Um, and then she sat down and started talking to me and, the, you know, there's some tests that you can take for that kind of thing. And, you know, realized that's what it was. Um, it, it, for me, it's very easy to recognize. And it's weird. Like, um, you know, like if I see a kid that's got it, like I can tell, like I can see it in the eyes almost immediately um, because it's, it's almost like looking in a mirror. Um, wow. So I, you know, I, I think to a certain extent that that helps at least for me to identify with other kids. Um, and I'm able to talk to them too. I mean, you know, it's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time working with parents of children that have this uh, or something similar, because I, I can kind of be that conduit. I can explain to the parents, this is what's really going on in your kid's brain, even though it looks like this. Um, and I'm by no means a therapist. It's just, it's somebody, you know, I'm somebody who's been there, done that, uh, just trying to weigh in. And, and from a parent standpoint, I think it's, it's helpful for them to see somebody that's accomplished a couple of things in life and, and know that their kid can, can still grow up, because um, there, there are a ton of benefits to, to having it as well as negatives. And you just kind of have to weigh those two things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was never diagnosed, but I'm fairly certain I'm ADHD. And uh, so what's, how, do, how does that, how's that like or different from Asperger's? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I could answer that because I don't, I don't have it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, so it's, it, it would be a tricky thing to, to weigh in on. I, I think the reason why I'm asking is, is uh, I'm hearing a lot of similarities in, in sort of how I learn and how I function uh, with ADHD to what you just described. Not everything's the same, but like the, the hyper focus, like not being interrupted, project oriented, um, sort of wanting to finish everything you start. Like uh, there's a lot of that, I think, in ADHD too. So I, I wonder if it's, if it's all on the spectrum somewhere. I, I think it is. I, I think doctors or people in general, we love to create these buckets and, and boxes that we can tick off to categorize things. And you know, it's a necessary evil. Um, but at the same time, I don't think anything in life is black and white. It's not you are or you aren't. I think we all are at some level or we all aren't at some level. And it's just varying degrees of those different things. Yeah. You know, like, you know, OCD is another one. I mean, it just kind of plays into a lot of these different, different things. Um, and I know a lot of people that have OCD and, you know, they've got very nice houses that are very clean and neat and organized. And, you know, that it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's right. not completely dominating their life. Right. Have you... Uh come across or been in contact with other novelists who have Asperger's? 
I, I know a few that I think probably do, but uh, we've never actually had an open conversation about it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think in a lot of ways, I recognize it in their writing. I see things that are, are, are familiar um, when I speak to them or, you know, emailing certain people, things like that. I, I, I see similarities there. Um, you know, but it could just be, you know, my mind fishing, you know, you just never really know. Confirmation bias, right? You're, you're seeing yeah. it where you want to see it. I just yeah, think exactly. It, I, I just think it's interesting too, though, that, uh, you know, th that the, the benefits, if you could call it that of Asperger's is, is sort of what's really helped you become who you are. And, and so I wonder if there are other authors out there who um, might don't even know they have it, have, have a, uh, you know, a certain type of it or uh, that's, that's consistent with people in this type of profession. Well, I, I think so. Just because we're, we're drawn to it, you know, yeah. the, the computer programming is another, another one. Like if, if you walk into a room of coders, you're going to find, you know, probably a good third of that room has something very similar to this. And, and there's a reason it's because our brain is structured to understand computer code. It's, it, you know, it's something that we enjoy. Um, writing is the same thing. I think that that structure, we, we, we kind of gravitate towards that structure, um, where, where other people may not. This is awesome. Let's, um, why, why don't we kind of wrap up this part of the conversation with some suggestions that you could share with, with us uh, for uh, dealing with people with, with Asperger's? Like what, what are some things that we can do um, if, if we encounter this out somewhere? Um, well, I mean, I, I primarily speak with, with parents, so yeah. I'll just kind of give you the same uh, spiel that, sure. I, that I give them, um, d get a couple of opinions, you know, don't, um, you know, if, if one doctor or one therapist or one psychologist, one psychiatrist or whatever tells you X, your child has X, you know, go to another one, go to another one and don't necessarily tell them that you've been to other ones. Um, you know, because anything like that creates a bias. And what, what I've seen happen quite a bit is if a child is misdiagnosed at an early age with anything like this, um, they end up going down a particular road, whether it's they put them on medication or oh. they start teaching them, you know, how to, you know, they try to teach them to learn in a, in a different way than they normally would, whatever it might be. Um, but if they get that diagnosis wrong and they do it at an early age, it can really screw up a child. Um, so I think it's very important that you, you know, if, if you think there's an issue with your kid that you, you go out there, get four opinions, get 10 opinions, whatever it might be. And, if, and if, you know, if the bulk of these people are all agreeing and giving you the same information, then they're probably right. Um, but definitely don't make a move just based on one. I've, I've seen a lot of kids thrown on medication that don't necessarily need to be on it um, or vice versa. You know, sometimes medication is the answer, but you know, just make sure you're, you've got the right answer before you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I can't say for sure. I, I'm, I can remember three cases in particular in my time as a classroom teacher where I taught children with Asperger's. And I, one of the things I remember in meeting with the parents and the administrators of the school was this idea that, um, that they speak very directly and it's not intended to be harmful or insulting, that it's, there's a less of a filter. And so they're going to just say things that they believe are true and, uh, and, and you have to kind of take it that way. Is that, is that something you've seen as well? Oh yeah. You should get my wife in here. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she somehow learned how to put up with me when, when it comes to that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm extremely direct. Um, I, I don't sugarcoat anything. Um, whereas somebody who doesn't have this will, you know, like yeah. you, you, you think about the emotional response, like, okay, if I say X, that's going to impact this person like this. So I should probably say it this way to try and you know ease it a little bit. Like I, 
I don't do any of that. Like I, I, tr I try to, um, that was one of the things that changed when I was initially diagnosed. Like once I realized that's what was going on and I was talking to a therapist that actually understood it, she said, okay, this is what's really going on in your brain. This is how, you know, how you react. This is how people expect you to react. And we would try to find some kind of common ground, um, and just kind of work forward from there. And it's, it's not as easy as it, as it sounds. Um, but it, but it can be done. Nice. Yeah. Well, hey man, I just want to, uh, I want to thank you for sharing that because sharing all of this, because, uh, this is a podcast and lots of people listen to it and, and your ability to be just really transparent and honest about your situation. I think other people will find it very inspiring. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's really good for anybody to talk about anything like this. Just the, the more it's out in the open, the more people are talking about it, the, the, the better for everybody, the, yeah. the more answers there are and the, the more, you know, direction people can go in, in, in the proper direction anyway. Yeah, totally agree. So you ready to switch gears and answer a few questions for me? We're going to talk about your book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I'll give listeners a little bit of update on where we are with that. Uh, I went through a series, I went through a process and sent you some pitches and we, we kind of settled on, on one pitch. And I think we agreed not to talk about the specifics of the high concept because it is so specific. And uh, so we're not necessarily going to get into the weeds on the story idea itself. I think where I am right now uh, is uh, I have a pretty solid pitch and that I, I kind of have the, the story arc in mind. And now I'm like, okay, uh, JD, if in your method, like where do I go next? Because I, yeah. I want to do it differently than I've done it before. And I, and I'm willing to sort of follow your process. So um, wh where do we go now? What's next for me? All right. So just to fill people in that may not have heard some of this from the earlier episodes, uh, I, I mentor a lot of authors. Um, I, I spent 20 some years working as a book doctor and a ghostwriter, helping other people fine tune their work um, and, and get, you know, find a path to publication. So that's kind of what we're, I'm, I'm putting you through the same ringer that I, I do with some of the, the mentoring um, authors that I work with. Um, so from a pitch standpoint, um, you, you gave me what about 10 or 20 different ones. Um, you ran them by some of your friends, beta readers, um, and everybody kind of selected their favorites. And we, we honed in on one out of all of them that, um, you know, without you telling me which ones they liked, without me telling you what, you know, like we all kind of honed in on the same one. Yes. Um, we, we did pull a little trick that I do quite a bit and I, and I, you know, I, I steal a lot of stuff from Stephen King. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> um, one of the things that he mentions in, I think it was on writing or it might've been Dance Macabre. Um, a lot of times he comes up with a really good idea, but it's not quite there. And, you know, he'll put it aside and he realizes, Hey, if I combine this idea with this idea, all of a sudden I've got gold. Um, and a lot of these, you know, the story ideas that I come up with or that tend to work, that that's what it is. It's not one particular, you know, road that the story is going down. It's two different stories that are kind of mashed together in a way that, you know, that, that basically creates something that's unique that hasn't been done before. Um, so that's essentially what we did with your, your pitches. We took two that I, I thought were really good um, and we combined them into one. Um, and I, I think you're in a very solid place now from a story standpoint, you've got your idea. So that's where we are now. So what do we do next? Um, what I typically do is I create my characters at this point. So okay. you've got your story, you've, you've kind of got your beginning, your middle and your end. Um, I, I tend to go to characters next. So I figure out, you know, who do I need? Um, and I, I've, I've got this particular exercise I use with writers groups. Um, and we, we basically write a novel. You know, I, I spend about four or five hours with, with the group and we write a novel there on the spot or we kind of plot it out. Um, and it's, it's about people that are in an airplane. 
Um, and yeah, I, I typically, I'll change it up a little bit. It could be a hijacking. It could be, you know, they just take off and World War III breaks out below, you know, on the, on the ground. Like, what do you do? Um, that kind of thing. So we'll start asking the group, you know, okay, so what kind of characters should we have in here? And people start throwing out, you know, the, the people they expect to be in that airplane. So, you know, they'll say, well, you've got a, pli- a pilot, you've got a flight attendant, um, probably got a business person. You've probably got somebody who's afraid of flying. And they start throwing out all these stereotypes that they've seen a million times in, in movies or read about in books. So I'll write them all down on the whiteboard and we'll get our list going. Um, and then when we're, we're kind of exhausted that process, I'll just start pointing at people in the crowd and I'll say, okay, what do you do for a living? And somebody will stand up and they'll say, well, I work for a, uh, you know, pet rescue. Another person will point to them. Oh, I'm an accountant. I'll point to another one. I'm a stay at home mom. Um, and I'll, I'll basically write all of that down. And that becomes our real character list. These are the real people that are going to be in that plane, not the ones that you thought. We still have the pilot because you kind of need that person. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but as far as everybody else. Um, so right now you're at the point where you need to create characters. So what you need to do is figure out, you know, roughly what your cast needs to be, you know, who, who is important, um, you know, who needs to be in that story 100%. Um, and, and who doesn't, and then try to figure out ways to tweak that and, you know, kind of pull from that airplane story, you know, pull characters in there that wouldn't necessarily be in there, you know, because that's what makes it interesting when you take somebody and put, take them out of their element and put them in there. If, if you, you know, follow the, you know, the original process with the airplane thing and you just go with the people that everybody expects to be there, you've got a boring story. Um, right. So you want to throw somebody else into the mix. Okay. Uh, pers- once I have my characters, I tend to develop a full backstory on them. They become as real to me as, as any other person. And one of the examples I tend to give is with Sam Porter. He's the lead detective in my, my fourth monkey killer series. Um, I could drop him at the front of Disney World and I could tell you what ride he would go to first. You know, it's never going to end up in a book, but I know him as a person well enough to, to understand that, you know, what he would do. Um, and you need to know all of your characters that well, I think, before you start a book. Otherwise, okay. it, it comes through in the dialogue. It comes through in their actions and their gestures and everything else. They be, they're very paper um, characters. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's plenty of times where I've sat down and I've, I've written a book and I throw a paper character in there and I figure out who that person is halfway through. And then I go back and I, I correct it on my, my second pass on the draft. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing that. But it, it's easier if you know who they are straight off the bat. Um, if you're in a pinch and you need to create a character very quickly, I tend to rely on actors, you know, like I'll, I'll pick, um, you know, like, oh, this could be Ben Affleck, um, you know, something like that. And now all of a sudden you've got, you know, the physical attributes of somebody, you know, what his speech patterns are like, because you've seen him in so many different things, you know, how he would react in certain situations, at least the, the movie version of Ben Affleck um, or whoever you pick. But, you know, actors and actresses, if you pull from that pool, that can save you a lot of time. Um, so I, I tend to do that quite a bit. So that's where you're at now. You need to create your character list. Uh, once you have that, I think you need to create a, a and this is going to sound weird coming from somebody that says he's a, a pantser, but I think you need to create some semblance of an outline. Okay. Um, only because I, I don't think you've done that in the past and I think it would be helpful to you. I, I, I think it's like anything else in writing. I think, you know, once you understand the rules 100%, you're, you're more than welcome to break them, but I think you have to fully understand those rules first. And I think for you to get to the finish line, especially in a book like this, because it, you know, it, it is fairly structured as far as story, uh, I think it would be helpful to, to have an outline. Yep. Um, one of the books I think I recommended to you was uh, Save the Cat Writes a Novel. Yes. Um, which is a, a great book for, you know, aspiring authors to read to, to get that structure. Um, there's, there's so many books on, on craft out there. Um, I, I don't read any of them, not really, um, because they, they all tend to say the same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you're not going to, you know, like I was getting back to what I initially said, you're not going to learn how to write you know, from a book. Somebody's not going to teach you how to write from a book. You, you can get all the grammar you need from, uh, from Strunk and White. Um, it's got a, you know, 
that, that part and the storytelling gene, though, know, that's something that's either there or it's not. Um, so, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of time reading those, those books and they think that it's, you know, oh, this one tells me how I, you know, I can write a novel in 31 days. And I think that's going to actually work. Um, it, it doesn't, <laughs> you know, so, but uh, Save the Cat is one that I actually do like because it does force you to, to create, you know, a, a sort of a three act structure um, and, and start plugging things in. And you may stick to it or you may not. Um, you know, we, we just had an interview with James Patterson and he talks about, you know, how, how he believes in outlines. Um, and I, I, you know, working with the guy, I see how effective they are. You know, for the most part, every book that I write, I end up with maybe 40,000 words on the cutting room floor by the time I'm done because I'm, I'm feeling certain things out. Um, I've got a book that I'm finishing up right now. I, I've, I've just finished writing the third ending for this book, third totally different ending. Wow. So I basically from chapter like 85 to chapter 105, um, you know, almost 50, 60 pages or something are completely rewritten three different times. Um, and now I just went back and I just rewrote a fourth ending, but I actually pulled from pieces from those other three. I, I took my three my favorite parts from those three and created what I think is actually the perfect ending. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, if people hadn't twisted my arm, if my agent wasn't saying, no, oh, this isn't quite right. My wife was telling me the same thing. You know, people weren't doing that for me. I probably wouldn't have even taken it that far. Uh, but now like the ending to me is, is it's perfect. And it's, it's, you know, it's what should have been there, but I needed to go through that other process in order to actually get there. Um, Patterson does a lot of that, you know, when he's actually creating the outline, that's when he's creative. You know, his, his outlines are extensive, you know, 30, 40, 50 pages long sometimes. Right. Um, and that's where he brainstorms and we figures out all these different moving parts. And, you know, that's, that's the part that he really enjoys doing. Um, but when you have an outline that is solid um, and you just sit down to do the work and write it, you can knock out that book really quick. And that's, that's one of the reasons why people like him are able to, to churn out as many novels as they do. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that, that's, be- that's good to hear because I am a plotter, but what I haven't done is the character part. That's the piece I've, I haven't. I haven't done a ton of character work prior to uh, drafting. So I think for me, that's going to be uh, a new process for sure. Well, characters to me, again, it's the story driver. I've got my, my new book coming out in March. It has a broken thing where our heart should be. I just sent you a copy of it. Um, if you flip it open, there's a paragraph at the very beginning. Um, now, I'll read it to you real quick because I've got 10 copies sitting on it. just happened to be sitting on my desk. <laughs> um, but this is basically when I wrote this one. This, this is all I had. Like I had this paragraph for probably about a year, a couple of paragraphs. Uh, it says, her name was Stella and I loved her from the first moment I saw her. Even after, after watching her kill a man who looked a lot like me, I couldn't help but love her. I didn't know she had killed him, not at the time. I couldn't possibly know. I only watched them kiss. But that moment spelled his death as surely as water runs downhill. We'd hide the body together amid her apologies for what she had done and she'd be gone, disappearing into the night. I could do nothing else but follow. My heart filled with ache, her scent pulling me so. Um, Jack Thatch, 22 years old. So I knew that my, that, that paragraph, but I had nothing else. Um, huh. And I went into the story with just that paragraph, the lead character, you know, his character, you know, what, what he was as a person and, and the girl that I just mentioned, Stella, yeah. uh, just kind of hit the ground running. But the only reason I can do that is because I've got a lot of books behind me. I've done this, you know, over and over again. So right. I think once an author gets that stride and figures out what's working and what's not, you, you can break some of the rules. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how deep do you, or did you, let's go back. So not now, but when you were really working, fleshing out these characters, how deep do you go on those, on those characters? Like what, how deep should I be going as far as creating these and turning these into quote unquote real people? Uh, pretty much you, you want a full history for them. Okay. Um, and it may seem silly, but like, I think it's important to know where they grew up, what schools they went to. 
um, you know, and, and I tend to just kind of break it down. Like, you know, if you've got somebody who's 23 years old, um, I'll go on Google and I'll say, okay, you know, let's say it's a girl. So we'll say, okay, what, what girl names were popular 23 years ago? That's something that most, most authors don't do, yeah. you know, but, it, but, you know, names change quite a bit. Um, so figure out what people were actually naming their children at the time when your character was born. Um, and that, that accomplishes a couple different things, you know, from a reader standpoint, there's certain names that, you know, like if you hear the name Gertrude, yes. you know, you immediately think of somebody, you know, an older woman, um, you know, that was a popular name Gertrude at one point was three years old and she was a little kid. Um, you know, so like the naming is extremely important. Um, once you have a name and once you've got an age, figure out where they were born, figure out where they grew up. If they moved to different places in between, just start plugging all these things okay. in as, as if you're writing a biography. Okay. Um, and once you feel you actually know them, then, then you can move on. Um, all right. It, it, you're going to find that it plays into your dialogue quite a bit too. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, one of my favorite books to read is, um, um, well, basically anything by Thomas Harris. Um, but if you read Silence of the Lambs, like you, you can pick out Hannibal Lecter's dialogue without any, he, he doesn't use a whole lot of dialogue tags, but you know, it's Hannibal talk. Right. And, and that's where you need to be. You need to be able to write a sentence and, you know, anybody looking at it as a re from a reader standpoint knows that that particular character said it. Yeah. Well, good. That's encouraging because I think the, the premise that I'm working from really does feed into this idea of having a cast of characters that are coming from wildly different places. So I think that's, that's built into it. Uh, so that, that should help facilitate this process for me. Yep. One of the other things I actually wanted you to try, because I, I, th this particular story is very cinematic. Like I can see, I don't want to go into any detail on the podcast and give anything away, but it's something I could easily see as a television show, like on Netflix or on HBO or, or one of those types of streaming services. You may want to consider writing your first pass as if it were a screenplay. So yeah. just going through and just, you know, throwing in little snippets of, you know, your, your environment and things like that, but primarily just focus on the dialogue and get that dialogue 100% from, from top to bottom. Cause I honestly think you've got a better shot of maybe selling this one as a screenplay, even before it goes as a, as a book. Interesting. Okay. Um, but, but even, even if you don't, you know, if you've got all the dialogue down, you can, you know, you go back and you turn it into a novel after the fact, it's, it's right. a very easy thing to do. Right. Um, Dean, Dean Koontz, I mean, that's actually one of the things he did at the very beginning of his career. He would get movie scripts and he would novelize, uh, turn, create the novel for it. Um, and he, he would turn those out very quickly, you know, like one or two weeks for, for each one. Um, it's, it's a good, it's a good skill set. All right. Excellent. Well, I think I've got some homework ahead of me. So that, that all sounds pretty good. Okay. All right, man. Well, hey, it was great, uh, great talking again. And um, we, we're not going to tease our next guest because we don't know exactly where this episode is going to go in the in the publication schedule. But uh, we will be back with an interview the next episode you guys listen to. So, all right, take care of yourself. All right, later. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.